0: Um, this morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12. Uh, you can follow along in your own Bibles or up on the screen behind you. Hear the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're continuing in our series in the book of 1 Peter. And we saw in the last two weeks that we're called elect exiles. And this identity is what allows us to go through persecution, difficulties, suffering, and come out as pure gold. We then saw that we're called to be holy as God is holy. And that holiness is given as a gift of grace bestowed upon us by Jesus Christ. And that we're called to live in that reality as our identity. In the passage of scripture today, we've read that we see Peter has just been talking about how Christ is the capstone. He's the foundation of the house of God. The world did not receive him. They stumbled over him. He came like a servant when they were expecting a king. He came to suffer when they were expecting a conqueror. As the Jews rejected him at his coming, so has the rest of the unbelieving world rejected and stumbled over him ever since. Now, there is so much more in that passage of the capstone and stumbling block that we could dive into. It could take many series of sermons in. But what I want to focus on is this one verse today. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I love that. That is so powerful. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's where I was born. My parents immigrated from Korea right before I was born, so I was born in Philly. And while I was in Philly, I kind of had race and identity issues. Not just kind of, I I think my whole life I've struggled with this. You know, in Philadelphia I was born, I was young, so I didn't really know much about kind of race and identity and being a minority. I didn't know what that was like. But I moved to Atlanta when I was a kid. And in Atlanta, I think for the first time, I was kind of struck with, I'm not around my family. Um, I'm not in a place where I know everybody. I went to a new city, noob town as a family. And I got struck with, wow, I am, I'm different. People treat me differently. They make fun of me. Um, and I got this kind of this weird, struck with this kind of weird moment in my life where it's like, what do I do with this? Right? I don't know about you guys, but some of you guys might have experienced it, some of you guys might not have. Some of you guys from a minority background or situation, you come into a majority culture and you just kind of like, I stand out. And you don't almost, kinda, you kind of don't know what to do with it. I remember um, I moved from Atlanta to the panhandle of Florida, which is often people call lower Alabama. I went to a middle school called Surfside Middle School. That was his actual name, Surfside Middle School. I was one of like five minorities in the whole school. And it was like my, my sister was like one of, you know, so it was like one of five. And I remember kind of being in there. And I remember at that moment, I kind of resolved in my heart. It's going to sound weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. I kind of resolved in my heart that at that moment, I am no longer going to be Asian. I will be white. <laughs> it's weird to say that, I know. But it's like, I didn't like write in my journal today. Dear journal, I am now white. It wasn't like this proclamation or this, this statement that I made out loud to anybody else. But it was more this kind of idea of like, I started being ashamed of kind of all things Asian, right? It was like, I don't want people to come to my house and smell kimchi, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't want people to look at my lunch. It's almost a common thing. Gina had this experience, most, most Asian Americans I talked to have this experience of like showing up at school with your lunchbox packed and having like kimbap or having like this like Asian food and people being like, ew, what is that? And I wasn't bold enough at the time. I wish if, like, if I ever happened to sigh, I would sigh and be like, "It's my food, man. What you? Yeah. <laughs> but me, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and I went home, and my, I was like, never ever pack lunch again for me. I got to have a sandwich or something. And then I told my dad, never again pack lunch. But if we ever had a field trip, and that we had to pack a lunch, my dad would take me to the gas station before school and just say, get whatever you want. And so I remember getting like, okay. I thought that was awesome. I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> But it was, was, I was ashamed, and I wanted to hide who I was. As an Asian American kid growing up, I was like, what, what, maybe that's where it started this whole idea of like, I never want to marry an Asian woman. Because most of you guys have heard my story, our story. I was resolved in my heart that I will never marry an Asian woman. And I say that because, at the time, it was one of these ideas where it said, well, that's what everybody expects, you know? I remember being in high school and everybody's like, I met an Asian girl today. I was like, okay. They're like, you should marry her. I was like, okay. Well-meaning people, but what they didn't know what they were speaking subtly was that you can only marry an Asian woman or you're not good enough to marry a white person. And these ideas were, were, were kind of being still, so I was always trying to kind of figuring it out, wrestling with this idea of, of who I am and trying to figure out this contradiction because I can try to act like I'm not, but the world wouldn't let me forget, right? Plus, you know, I love my Asian food. I I was like, man, what am I doing with this? This is delicious. I want to eat this. But why do I try to hide? And honestly, I use the food as an example, but there's so much of my identity that's wrapped around this idea of of who am I and culturally, ethnically, racially, what am I? I remember going off to college and I was one of those guys that never joined uh, one of those Asian associations, Asian students, never went to a Korean church. Um, I was one of those guys that was was like, "Ah, I'm not going to hang out with any of those Asian people. I remember in seminary, one of my, a lot of my white friends actually were working at Korean churches. And they'd ask me to come speak at one of their events, a Disciple Now type thing, Grow For It, whatever weekend. And I'd go and I'd, and I'd speak at the event and all the Korean moms and dads were there. And they'd look at me like, wait a minute, why are you not working here? You're the Korean guy and you're speaking to the kids, but why, why, I'm so confused right now. And I remember when I first wanted to go into the ministry, I told my parents, I told certain people that I wanted to go into the ministry. This is my desire. I don't think I can do anything else. I just have to be, I want to go into the ministry. And my parents, first thing they said to me was, you better get better at Korean. I was like, what? Your Korean needs to get better. And I said, I said why does my Korean need to get better? And I said, because the only job you'll ever get is working at a Korean church. Because there's no way a white church will let you be their pastor. Well, get emotional now. I love you guys so much, and I want to thank you for giving me the incredible honor of being your pastor. Um, You've so helped me find out who I am and my identity. You see, who I am and who we are is we are a chosen race together. A brand new race. It doesn't negate my background, my appearance, or my culture. I am who I am. But rather, it embraces it all. It calls us in and gives us fuller identity. We are a chosen race together. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, honestly, I'm just overwhelmed thinking about it. I have this incredible privilege of being together with all of you saying, we're from all different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities, and God doesn't negate that. He says, yes, that's beautiful. I made it that way. That's glorious. But together now, we are a new race, a fuller identity, a chosen race. This is a corporate identity. He's talking about the church, the true Israel, but the implication is very individual. This race is not racial. A chosen race is new people from all peoples, all colors, all cultures, who are now aliens and strangers among the world. What gives us our identity is not our color or our culture, but our chosenness. Christians are not the white race, the black race, the Asian race, or any other thing, but instead, we are the chosen ones. And from all groups, we have been chosen one at a time, not on the basis of any group. That's why this amazing phrase is so crucial for us. We are part of the chosen race because, the, the, because this race is made up of individuals who are chosen from all races. So your identity first is that you are chosen. God chose you. Not because of how good you were. Not because of what race you are. Not because of where you grew up. Or for any other qualification, God chose you. I don't know why. Nothing in me that was worthy. Nothing in you that was worthy. Nothing unto us that had value. You didn't earn it. There was no merit involved in it. There was no condition that you met to get it. But it happened before you were born. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's who you are. You're a chosen race. Do you hear that? In a world and in a culture often where race is the defining factor of our lives and our circumstances. Do you hear that? In a, in a place, in, in a time, Sunday morning in the South, where we show over and over again in other places, in other places, that the most defining factor is race and color. Right? Don't we see that in Sunday mornings? Was it Martin Luther King who said the most segregated place in time is Sunday morning in America, right? Do we see here that we are a chosen race, that our identity is not found in a color of our skin? And it's not, and I, I hate to, say anything against Martin Luther, but it's not found in the content of our character either. That our identity is found in the fact that we have been chosen by God. Do you hear that? Nothing you did to earn it. There's also nothing you can do to lose it. That's who you are. And maybe you are like me. Maybe you're trying to figure out who you are. Maybe you're trying to figure out your identity, whether it's because of your race and the way you grew up, maybe because of minority culture, maybe because of your language, maybe because of your cultural background. Maybe you're trying to figure out who you are because you don't know what job you have or what future has in store for you. Maybe you're trying to figure out who you are because you don't know uh, your parents have never given you the worth or, or the feelings of being worthy or loved. I don't know the reason, but let me tell you right now, this is what scripture says, you are chosen by God. You are a new chosen race. And all the background, all the backdrop that you have, all the stuff that's who you are, that's accepted and loved and brought into it, so it gives you a fuller identity. But also gives you incredible purpose. Isaiah 19, 24, 25 says, In that day, Israel would be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I'm going to read that again. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Bless me, Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Guys, you have to really know the Old Testament to get this. But if you do, what you're reading here is, you're talking about Egypt and Assyria being blessed together, combined together with Israel. Now, if you know the Old Testament, that is crazy talk. Right? These are the enemies of God. These are the peoples, the cultures, the races that are separate. These are the people that says, no, 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 you have nothing to do with Israel. They are the evil ones. These are the enemies. But what is saying here is blessed together, the three of them. He's calling Egypt best, the Syria, the work of his hands. Guys, do you hear this? Even in the Old Testament, what God was pointing to is that his chosen race is going to go forth and bring forth the works of Egypt and of Syria together into a whole new chosen race. Guys, as people of the chosen race, if our identity is found in that, isn't that the hope our world needs right now? When people try to draw lines and divisions, can we first say our identity is found in the fact that we are a chosen race, where the Egyptian and the Assyrian come together with Israel. Does that make sense? So first, we are a chosen race. Second, we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now first, that first statement should strike you a little strange because royal and priesthood should not go together. Right? This is an audience that Peter is writing to that's primarily Jewish. And this would have stuck out to them even more so than it sticks out to you. Because honestly, when I first read it, that just sounds cool. I'm like, oh, royal priesthood. I like the sound of that. didn't really jump out at me. I didn't catch it at first. (laughs) But it should jump out at you. Because in the Old Testament, the monarchy and the priesthood were strictly separated. Priests came from the lineage of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. And only they could approach God at his temple. They could offer sacrifices. The rest of the Jews could not. In addition, the king was special in Israel because he was anointed with oil by the priest. So the king and the monarchy was separate from the priesthood. This means the king was equipped and empowered by God to do the task of ruling Israel and fighting the battles of the Lord. We see Holy Spirit coming upon the king to win battles. Similarly, the priest was anointed, but therefore empowered by the Holy Spirit to minister to God and the people. But again, these were separate and separate privileges. The privilege of being royal priesthood would have stood out to the original audience. How do these two lines come together? The only way possible is because of Jesus. There is no longer a priest who must come from a specific tribal line. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 7.17 says that in the new covenant, Christ, our high priest, comes from the order of Melchizedek, who, by the way, just so you are aware, I wanted to name my first son after. I tried so hard, so one day, still, I'm fighting for this, Melchizedek. Because what Melchizedek means... (laughs) It means king-priest of peace. How cool is that? A king and a priest. I love it. But it says our high priest comes from the order of Melchizedek, who was the former king and priest of Salem, which means peace, whom Abraham paid tithes to. This is was prophesied about the Messiah coming, that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he will not only be a priest, but he will also be our king. Christians are called royal priests because they represent the fact that we are united with Christ. Get this, we are not priests because of our lineage, we are not priests because of our line, because we're from the line of Levi. But we are called royal priests because of our connection to Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see the difference? In Romans eight 17, we're called co-heirs with Christ. It means we'll reign with them eternally. Here on earth, our role is to draw men onto Himself and to lead people in the worship of him as priests. Guys, what Peter is saying, when he calls us a royal priesthood, he's literally not only saying that we're priests as a calling, our vocation, our job, but he's also saying that the only reason you're able to identify, the only reason you're able to have this title, this incredible separate title that was only given for one tribe and even then a specific person from each tribe, a very exclusive title. That the only reason you're given that title is because of the work of Jesus. Guys, we say here at Waypoint Church that every member is a missionary. Don't we say that? Because we believe, I've seen over and over again in the churches growing up, I've seen over and over again, there seem to be a hierarchy of Christians, right? In churches. You've, you guys nod your head. You guys have to see. Have you seen that, right? You've been like, the really holy Christians are like missionaries. And like pastors, and then like Sunday school teachers, and then, what you know, there's kind of like a hierarchy. You know what I'm saying? The ones who are really holy. And we believe here at Waypoint Church, there is no hierarchy. That every single member is a Christian. And that's what Peter is saying here. There is no hierarchy. I don't care if you're from the tribe of Levi, or the tribe of Benjamin, I don't care. It's who you are in Christ that makes you a royal priest. Do you get that? It's who you are in Jesus makes you a royal priest. So what does being a priest entail, right? The priest in the Old Testament had primarily two major jobs. Number one, being the people's advocate or mediator or representative, okay? I'll say that again. Number one, being the people's advocate, um, um, uh, mediator, or um, what was I just said there? Uh, Thank you. (laughs) representative. Or then two, taking care of the people, namely the poor, right? Those are the two main jobs of the priests. So number one, priests. Priests were advocates, mediators, the ones who came to God on behalf of the people. They were the representatives. They did this first by leading others in worship. So as a royal priest, your first job is to go to God. Are you worshiping? Are you a worshiper? Do you hear me? Your first job as a priest, knowing your identity, is you're called to be first worshipers. You're called to be the ones that worship God first, to to behold his power and glory, and then lead others in the worship of him. That doesn't mean you need to bust out a guitar, because that would be bad for me. I am not good. It doesn't mean you have to have a pleasant singing voice. Once again, that would be bad for me. I am not good. Leading others in worship is first you worshiping. See, the priest's first role as as they sang the Psalms of Ascent, as they brought the people together, as they read from the law together, their first job is to say they first went to God and then people went with them. Your first job is are you worshiping God? Do you adore Him? Are you beholding His power and His glory? Are you in awe of His majesty? Cause let me tell you, when you're truly in awe of something, people often want to follow. It's like when I see that person love that meal, or that write about that incredible restaurant. I have a friend of mine who does the Yelp thing hardcore. Um, I didn't like. I've never actually wrote a review. I read the reviews on Yelp, but I've actually never wrote a review. This friend writes reviews at all. The he goes to this church actually, and he writes reviews everywhere, right? But when he writes a good review, I'm like, I should go there. You know, like there's something about like somebody who really enjoyed something. Like, oh, I want to taste that too. Guys, when you're worshiping, others will follow. Are you worshiping? Your job is to lead others as you worship first. You also, as and the priests offered sacrifices. Now what they would do in the offering of sacrifice is they would bring forth uh, an animal and bring forth a blood sacrifice, but we no longer are in the sacrificial system because Jesus was a sacrifice once for all. So when priests offer sacrifices, we are no longer offering sacrifices. But what we are offering is our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is our spiritual act of worship. We're called to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of our people. Do you, do you hear that? Guys, I, I think we say that a lot in the church, like sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know, because that's, that's a very common term, Jesus sacrifice, sacrifice is a very common theme. But we often stop and not really think about what it means to offer your bodies, yourselves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. When a priest became a priest, that was what ruled their identity, right? There was nothing else. When they were a priest, that's who they were. That's what you are. You are a priest full on. Everything in your life revolved around this idea of being a priest. What God's calling you to do is not to say don't be a teacher. He's not saying don't be whatever job. But he's saying let everything in your life, everything that you do, start from the starting point of who you are in Christ. When it says offer your bodies a loving sacrifice, he's saying, Social worker, as a dentist, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as an engineer, as a mother, as a father, as a student. Whatever it is that you do, you do all from the starting point of your identity is now you're a priest. You're a holy race. And out of the overflow of that comes everything else that God's called you to do in your life. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Three, priests prayed. That's what a priest did. They prayed. They prayed for their people. They prayed for their friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters. We're told in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is our great high priest, for he ever lives to intercede for us. A priest is an advocate. A priest is somebody who goes on behalf of someone else, and a priest is somebody who prays. Christ stood before the Father and lifts us up. This is a beautiful illustration out of the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, a priest had an ephod, and it was a breastplate. And the high priest had on the ephod 12 precious stones, beautiful stones, big stones. And they represented the 12 tribes and the clans and families of Israel. The names of the tribes were written on the stones. Each name of each tribe was written on the stones. And what that meant was that the high priest would literally read over the names of every tribe, every member of Israel, he took it upon his responsibility these are his people and he prayed and interceded these beautiful stones were engraved here and literally this is what Jesus means when Jesus is our high priest, I want you to hear this, that literally Jesus, not literally but figuratively Jesus is wearing an ephod and he has a breastplate on and in this breastplate has stones countless numbers and on each stone is our names The Son prays for us. He intercedes for us. Guys, what a beautiful image that the priest is called to. That first, Jesus, I want you to not miss this, that Jesus knows you by name. You are his people, and he prays and intercedes on your behalf. He is the great high priest. But, guys, as royal priesthood, are you praying for people? I asked a question last week. I said, with full conviction in my own heart. I said, if God answered every one of your prayers that you prayed last week, if every one of your prayers got answered like that from last week, how many people would know the Lord? What would happen for the sake of the kingdom? Or would would we see a lot more A's on tests and big raises and vacation days and you know what I'm saying? With full conviction in my heart, I remember thinking that and I'm like wow, my duty is to pray. Your duty. Because what do we say about prayer at Waypoint Church, anybody? Not just Skittles. What do I say? What is prayer? I love you guys. Prayer is God's appointed means of enacting his will. Guys, are we praying? Are we taking the example of Jesus Christ, our high priest, who intercedes before us? Or we see the example of every one of us by name? He knows us by name. that We're written on his heart. Literally on his heart. And he prays for us. Are we praying for people? Do we want to see his will enacted on earth as it is in heaven? And may we rise up as a praying people. Praying for the ones. Praying for the lost. Praying for our neighbors. Praying for our co-workers. Praying for our family. Priests were also the ones who took care of the weak and the needy. They constantly reminded, but they did this in two ways. One, they constantly reminded people of justice and the need to help. The priest's role was the ones to say, hey guys, here's the law. Remember it. What does it say about taking care of the poor, and the widowed, and the orphaned? They're the ones who spoke into society and said, this is what the law says. Guys, as priests, are we speaking in for justice? Are we fighting for the sake of the poor and the needy, the orphaned and the widowed? They also did the business of serving. As priests, we're called to also be in the business of serving. Serving the forgotten. Serving those who are in need. Serving the ones God has called us to serve. I'm kind of trying to rush a little bit here. The third thing that we've been called. So we were called a chosen race a royal priesthood, we're also called a holy nation. A holy nation. This is terminology used of Israel. In Exodus 19.6, they were called a holy nation. They were set apart by God for good works, to serve Him and worship Him. In the same way, we are chosen, we are set apart for good works. This separates us from the world. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Isaiah, the nation was called to be a light to the nations to open the eyes of the blind. Guys, I don't want you to miss this. From the very beginning, the nation of Israel was called to be a holy nation set apart for God. His treasured possession. The nation was to spread the kingdom of God and be a blessing to the nations. That was the role of this holy nation, and that is the very title that Peter gives us as well. He says, you're a holy nation, right? This is who you are, you're an entity. When I think of nation, I think of there's race and there's ethnicity, but there's also nations, kind of more subdivided. A nation is a sovereign state. A nation is a group of people organized under one common governance system, right? A sovereign state. And a nation has a purpose. This nation has a purpose was to advance the kingdom of God and be a blessing to the nations. Guys, Jesus echoed this exact same statement when he gave the Great Commission. Which is, go, therefore, and make disciples. He's literally telling you, as a nation, as a holy race, as a royal priesthood, he's literally saying, go and advance the cause of the nation. Another word for nation could be kingdom, right? Yes? We're a holy kingdom. And God's called us, Peter's calling us, this is your identity, go and be a holy kingdom, expanding the cause. The Israelites were made and brought together to be a set-apart nation for the purposes of advancing the kingdom of God, where God's very rule and reign exists. And in the Great Commission, that's what Jesus is saying further. He's saying, go and make disciples. In other words, make more image-bearers. In other words, advance the kingdom. That's your job, that's our job. We have marching orders. We're literally, we're a nation together, brought together, a sovereign state, that's brought together to say, go and expand the kingdom of God. Not by conquering through force of arms, with gun and might, but conquering the way Jesus did by laying himself down to die. By sacrifice, by love and humility, we conquer because we make other image bearers of Jesus. Lastly, we're called a people for his own possession. Now, this is actually a shame. This is actually a pretty lousy translation. I mean, it's it's an accurate translation in regards to like accurate to the words that were used, but doesn't kind of convey the depth of this. The King James Version actually said you're called a peculiar people, which is really not good at all. It literally means translates God's own people, God's special possession, The way I liken it, this shows the nerd in me. I think it's like Gollum saying, my precious. (laughs) I know, that's what I thought of. Gina and I would sometimes talk about like what if our house was burning down? What if there was a fire in our house, right? And what would we save? What's, What's that thing that you're gonna go and just, you have to go get us irreplaceable, you know, like insurance won't cover and I just gotta go get that thing. And I was thinking about it. I couldn't think of anything really. You know, Gina was like, I don't know, guitar or pictures, right? Um, Hard drives with all the pictures that we have because we haven't updated all to the cloud yet. So I was just thinking about what is that thing? What is that possession that you have that you're like, man, the place is burning down and there's just, I I couldn't think of anything. And obviously my first gut is, well, if my house is burning down, I am like flying upstairs or I'm grabbing my son because there's nothing else I can think of. Nothing else matters. Nothing is as irreplaceable as my boy. And guys, I want you to hear this. That is the way that God's talking about this here. This is the language Peter is using in Greek. He's saying he's passionately in love with you. You are irreplaceable, that you are his precious. More than Gollum loves his ring. That's a very smooth romantic line, by the way. If you ever date a girl that's as nerdy as you, Guys, you can say, I love you more than God and love this ring. Okay, you're welcome. (laughs) Guys, I want you to hear this. what, What Peter is writing here, what Peter is literally conveying in this language, is that you are irreplaceable. You are God's own possession. You are his. Guys, please hear me. You are loved. You are adored. You are seen as irreplaceable. You're sought after. You're valuable. Guys, there's so many of you who often will sit and wonder what value you have. Your worth is found in so often fleeting things. It's so often found whether you feel like you look good or whether you feel like you have enough money or you have a job or you're accomplishing enough. Guys, let me tell you that your worth should be found, that the God of the universe, creator of everything, looks at you and says, you are so precious to me. You are mine. I paid the highest price for you. I'm never letting you go. I adore you. Who you are, you're my most valuable possession. I gave everything for you. That's who you are. Remember, Peter is writing to people going through suffering and persecution, and they're about to go through so much more. And Peter is saying to them, remember who you are. You belong now because you're part of a chosen race. You belong. You have purpose now because you're a royal priesthood through Jesus. That means you are called to lead others to worship. You're called to pray for others. You're called to care for the poor, care for the needy. You're a holy nation. You're on mission. You're sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're going to spread the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And you're adored. You're so loved. I would never let go is what God is saying. I've grabbed the hold of you. You are my prized possession. This is who you are. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you look at us God, and you see us as your prized possession. God, you, we are more precious to you than anything else. God, that you gave everything that you sent, the most holy one, you sent Jesus to die for us. You paid the highest cost. Jesus, we thank you that, God, as you endured the cross, you did it for the joy set before you. And the joy set before you was us. Us in relationship with you. Us in relationship with the Father. God, that when you looked, literally, you said, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. What value you give us. God, we're called beautiful and beloved by you. Thank you. God, our worth is found in you. So when we face suffering, when we face persecution, may we know who we are. In Jesus' name.